Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, guest and I explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton. I'm president of Morton Group LLC, and we work with organizations, foundations, nonprofits, for-profit companies around the country. Our website is mortongroup.com, M-O-R-T-E-N-G-R-O-U-P.com. We work in the areas of organizational development, research, executive placements, diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. And as you can imagine, right about now, we are spending a fair amount of time uh, talking to our current and uh, new client partners about racial equity. We are excited and feel very honored to be able to do this work. And this is the work that is needed to really have a transformation. So again, we're happy to talk to you about your work and your organization and how we might be helpful. Uh, But today, our topic of discussion will be career coaches and mentors. Do you need one to succeed? Many of us have had people in our lives who to varying degrees have supported our growth and helped us foster success in our careers. Some elect to hire professional career coaches or seek out specific people in their fields to approach about mentorship. But what do these relationships and supports look like? And are they necessary for professional and personal success? That's what we'll be talking about today with our guests, Amina Dickerson and Janine Hill. Amina Dickerson founded Dickerson Global Advisors in 2009, building on her leadership experience for over three decades, working in the nonprofit, corporate, and philanthropy sectors. As a professional coach and strategist to emerging leaders, the philanthropic community, and nonprofit organizations. Her consulting practice focuses on leadership advancement, cultural planning, nonprofit development, and strategic partnerships. Amina works as a coach with the Kellogg School for Nonprofit Management at Northwestern and as a faculty advisor to Young Cultural Innovators, a program in Austria. Yes, I said Austria. She works globally, hence the name, and we are so excited to welcome her here to Gathering Ground. And next, I want to introduce Janine Hill. Janine is the president of SOAR Strategies. SOAR Strategies is a coaching and consulting firm focused on the program, policy, and organizational development of the social good sector. For over 20 years, Janine has worked in and with nonprofit organizations of varying sizes and budgets. Janine is a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health, is a co-active training institute trained coach, as is Amina, and has a certificate of professional achievement in nonprofit management from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. So I'm really excited to welcome both Janine Hill and Amina Dickerson to Gathering Ground. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm delighted to be here. I am so happy that we could uh, come together to have this conversation. It's one that um, I I think about often because I do coaching as well, but not in the way you two do. And so um, we are excited to have you here with us on Gathering Ground today to talk about coaching and mentoring, how important you think it is uh, to uh, someone's career. Um, And we want to start by hearing from both of you. We always like to start with getting some context for for what's led you to this point in your life. And so, uh, Janine, I'm going to start with you. Tell us how you you came to your new, you know, somewhat new, it's three years old now, right? Um, Your business um, and tell us about it and tell us about your career trajectory up to now. Yeah. So I'm super excited to be here. I would say I'm really a public health practitioner by training. So um, my focus historically has been on the health of mothers, women, and children. And so I really come at it from 
that lens, that equity lens, and then became a nonprofit exec for most of the last 10 years. I was the executive director of Ever Thrive Illinois in Chicago. And then now, you know, like you said, three years in uh, forming my own business source strategies, which really does um, both coaching and mostly coaching of black women. That's, that's my target audience. That's who I'm resonant with. And then consulting. So the consulting is typically either nonprofit organizational development or diversity, equity, inclusion um, with a focus on racial equity, much like Mary, your work. Um, and I would say I became a coach just because I had a really good coach. So in my last two years at EverThrive, uh, I was like, well, I think I've made it through my bucket list of what I wanted to do here, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And I found a coach. She was wonderful. Um, and she kind of laid the seed. I remember her saying at one point, like, you'd be really good at this. You should think about this. And like seeds go, they didn't germinate for two years. And then I was like, oh, yeah, let me try this thing out. This is actually what I was most passionate about when I was with my staff was coaching them. And so that's that's how I found uh, my way and my next path. Wonderful. Janine, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up and, and currently live now in Evanston. My parents, um, you know, were really first generation college students. My mom is from the South Side. My dad is from the West Side. They met at Northwestern, uh, were married by junior year, were a part of, you know, really our activists, were part of the Bursars 100, which is a group of Northwestern Black students that shut down the Bursars office um, to advocate for more representation on faculty and more money for, for Black uh, efforts at the university. And so I come from a history of advocates. So they were like, we like this place. We kind of like it up here. Uh, and so they settled and made a family. Um, my dad is an orthopedic surgeon. My mom is a nonprofit exec. So I get my health stuff from my dad and my nonprofit exec stuff from my mom. And, um, you know, I'm the oldest of three, so I'm used to being the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we want to turn to Amina. Now you are, you found it, uh, Dickerson Global Advisors, right? This global um, agency that really builds on your years of work in the arts and culture field and philanthropy. How did you start thinking about doing this work following such a successful run at Craft, um, which is when we started, I think, working more closely? Um, but you, you had this career too around arts and culture and working in the museum world and it's fascinating. So tell us, tell us the story. I call it my mosaic life. Yes, absolutely. I, I yeah. kind of claim that as a, a way of being in the world, that you don't have to just be in one lane, that if there are other things that call you, you should certainly explore them. Um, I'm a Washingtonian uh, by birth, a, a native Washingtonian, not Maryland, not Virginia, Washington, D.C., second generation. My mom and dad are both from Washington. Uh, and being in what was Chocolate City, but also the only place in the United States where you have no elected representation was deeply uh, informing to me uh, as I was growing up. Being in Washington, however, we had arts all around, so it was kind of a natural thing for me. I started uh, first uh, working in the theater, actually as a teenager. Uh, when I see Fame, the movie, that's like my life because we were uh, there at George Washington University with Debbie Allen, by the way, before oh my it became the Ellington School. Um, I, I continued down that path and, and sort of fell into arts management because I did not like the rejection that happened when you went to audition and you didn't get the part. I was like, hmm, maybe I don't have the constitution for this after all. 
And I was around so many talented people. But so the arts uh, and theater led me to arts management, which led me to museums. I had a wonderful um, 23 year run in the museum world, working at um, uh, the Museum of African Art. And I love to tell the story. The first museum I worked in was in Frederick Douglass's first home in Washington, DC. Uh, there were nights I was doing programming and I swore I heard Fred talking to me. Anyway, um, uh, I did that work. I worked in Philadelphia. I came to Chicago in 85 to head DuSable Museum. I did um, uh, a couple of uh, museums here, then went into the philanthropic space, as you say, with Kraft Foods. And I, uh, all along, people would come to me and sort of say, can I talk to you? Or wanting to know what your career trajectory was. I would get these notes years later from people saying, that piece of advice that you gave me, or that counsel that you gave me, or the opportunity that you gave me. And, um, and so it sort of clicked. And uh, it wasn't until I got to Kraft Foods and understood that there were actually formal ways to be a coach. Uh, our leadership had coaches. Everybody on the C-suite had coaches. And at a certain point, as I was pushing for a promotion in a certain way, one of the HR people said, well, you know what? We need to get you a coach. Had a wonderful guy. And he also told me, as with Janine, that, you know, you should think about doing this more formally. And so that was really my ticket out of craft. I got them to pay for my earliest coach training and uh, started coaching even while I was wrapped up my tenure there. It was a great run in, uh, at Kraft, but I knew that I wanted independence and just a shift. And coaching provides that for me. It really gives me the opportunity to work almost anywhere in the world and with people from all over the world all the time. So I too had a coach, but not until probably a formal coach, um, probably until about, uh, well, maybe about 15 or so years ago. I was actually um, at the Chicago Foundation for Women, I had already been the board uh, president and was at that time, I was the associate director and became the interim. And it was difficult for me to leave. Um, the staff wanted me to stay. I wanted to go back to my business full time. And I thought, I'm going to need someone to coach me out of here. And so I got a coach and it was the best thing I ever did. And then like you all, it's like, oh, you should think about doing this. This is, it was something that people were coming to me for informally. Yes. Um, and um, one of the books that I, I often use, I'll just say here as a tool, is Fierce Conversations. I don't know if either of you have ever used that. And that was what my coach gave me. And I'm telling you, I should have stock in that company because I, all of my team uses it. I use it in all of my coaching uh, engagements. And again, I don't do it to the level that you all are doing it, but it's been enormously helpful. So if you're listening, and we hope you will be, um, Susan Schott, um, Fierce Conversations is a great tool um, and um, just want to put that out as a resource. So let's talk about how you actually go about um, deciding if it, it's a good fit because I, I liken this to you're checking out a doctor, you're checking out a therapist, right? You just, you've gotten a referral. How does someone come to you? Because I know that people are nervous about trying to find a coach and, and you know, what, how does this relationship work? So Janine, from your perspective, how do, you, how do you start working with someone? If someone's just expressing interest. Yeah. So um, I, I would say at this point, you know, word of mouth is, is rolling. So most people come to me in some ways a warm lead in that they've talked to someone who has been coached by me, who knows me as a mentor and, and can kind of advocate and, and vouch for my philosophy and the way I go about coaching. So 
I usually always have, you know, a free 30 minute call. I call it a dis discovery session. And so we, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to feel the client out to figure out if they're ready to be coached, if they're ready to think about new ways of thinking of things, if they're ready to kind of address their imposter syndromes. So I'm looking for readiness. I'm looking for introspection. Um, and I, I say how I think about it. You know, I say that like, Remember, my role as a coach is not to give you advice. It's really to be a professional listener. It's really to get you to listen to yourself. You have the answers inside. My job is to ask powerful questions to get you there, to, to create a safe and brave space where you can really have honest conversations with yourself to get you to the answer. And that's you know really, in some ways, the difference between my role as a coach than a mentor or a consultant. And so that's really how I approach it. And I, I think my clients are the experts on their own life. And it's not my, it's not my role to, to make assumptions. It's my mm -hmm. role to listen. Mm -hmm. Interesting, okay. And Amina, what's your-, what's your... Uh, Janine has really said it. Uh, I, I think uh, the biggest distinction has to do with people thinking that they're gonna come to you for advice but understanding that they have the answers inside right. and right. as you call it, uh, called it, fierce questions. Mm -hmm. You know, we really try to probe and help them get a perspective, a client get a perspective about themselves. In terms of how they come to me, they come to me in all different ways. I've been very blessed from the very beginning uh, to have uh, lots of referrals uh, and, and uh, former clients referring other clients. But in terms of Seeking out a coach. Um, a coach is not uh, a mentor. Some people say, I want you to come and mentor me, and that's a different relationship. And I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's having some idea of what it is that you want to gain um, from, from coaching. You know, some people like come and, you know, do me, uh, and it's not that at all. It's, you start with an inquiry. What is it that you really are trying to understand about yourself, about your work, about your possibilities, about your career? What is a challenge that you have that you want to uh, have a partner? Because that's how I view myself. I'm your partner in this inquiry process. I'm here to support you. It's a co-active relationship that we have, uh, but uh, I, I am not here to give you the advice about what you should do. Uh, I think Janine said it so brilliantly. You are the expert uh, of your own life, uh, on your own life. And so my job is to help you understand the full dimensions of it by asking you questions that connect you back to those spaces inside of yourself. Okay. Um, that's, that's an interesting distinction um, because, uh, to your point, uh, Janine, coaching uh, different from mentoring and different than consulting. Let's talk about some of those differences because coaching and mentoring are often mixed in together. And yeah. how do you see the distinction, Janine? Yeah. You know, when I'm wearing my mentor hat, what I do is I am more prescriptive um, and I am you know, when I'm a mentor, I think people are coming to me because I've had certain experiences in my career, right? I've been a nonprofit executive director, as we all have uh, on this call. And uh, so I think people are asking, like, given this scenario, Janine, what would you do? And I'm like, okay, well, given this scenario, here's what I would do. Not, you know, here's what I would do. Um, and here's what I might advise you to think about. So when I'm wearing my mentor hat, I am much more prescriptive. Uh, and, and much more in an advisory role. I'm giving advice a lot of the time. 
I'm listening to, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm more apt to give advice. When I'm a coach, like I got to turn that, like I am the expert and I know X, Y, and Z, and I have been where you are. I turn that completely off and I am there to listen and to say, I hear you saying this. What does this mean? How is this infringing on your values? As Amina said, like, what's your goal here? You know, what, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to improve in yourself? So to me, when I'm wearing the coach's hat, just like a, a, a sports coach, I am on the sidelines. I am super aware that I am standing on the sidelines. And in some ways, I'm a champion. In some ways, I'm a cheerleader. In some ways, I'm a questioner. In some ways, I'm like, mm, I don't see that. Nope, I'm not going to let you get away with talking that way about yourself. And so that's a different type of role than a mentor. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let's just talk about the, the other piece, cons- consulting. What do you think the distinction is there? Yeah. So consulting, I mean, you know, even more so, I think, than a mentor. A mentor is still like giving advice, but kind of hands off. When I'm a consultant, I'm like in there, right? I'm in there with you. I'm getting my hands dirty. I am the expert. You are hiring me because you think I know something about something. And so I am doing, you know, I'm not just like advising in a mentor role. I'm actually doing. I might be writing a plan around racial equity and inclusion figuring out what an organizational structure should look like. I'm actually in the doing phase. I'm, I'm, you are paying me because you see me as an expert in something, and I feel like I have certain deliverables that I need to provide to you as my client. That's great. That's a great distinction. And Amina, um, when you think about mentoring versus coaching, do you find that it's necessary to make sure that people understand that distinction as you well, start yes. to them? Because they come to you with, I, I need help with this. You know, can you can you fix this for me, perhaps? I think one of the first conversations you have uh, in a sample session where you're trying to see if the chemistry is right for you to work with someone, if they want to work with you, and certainly in the first couple of sessions in discovery and as you're training together how you're going to work together, you make it very clear about what the mentoring role is and what the, uh, what the coaching role is. And there are times that you have to say, that's really a great question, but it's not something that I can answer. If you'd like to have a separate conversation about that, we could have a separate conversation and I can share with you what my experience is around that. But you still are reluctant in a coaching relationship to give too much advice, even though that's really what people want. Tell me what to do. Uh, And you have to keep sort of asking questions to draw that out of them and say, oh, no, you had that answer. And what do you think about that? And how do you want to approach that? And what's an action plan toward getting to that point? Um, so I, I try to make it very clear that I'm not here to mentor. Uh, I think mentor roles are very often unpaid roles. A coaching relationship is a professional relationship. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, the, the idea of providing advice and counsel, uh, I think it's a more intimate role as a mentor. Come and hang out with me. Come and go to this event. Let me share this with you. Uh, let me uh, move into a sponsor role and wire you up with someone or make sure that you're at a particular table. So all of those are appropriate, but in a formal coaching relationship, you have to establish those boundaries about what you can and cannot do within the context of a coaching um, uh, engagement. Okay. And I'm curious to know uh, what you have both noticed that you hear, well, Janine, you said that you focus primarily, is it exclusively uh, on coaching with Black women? If someone else who was not Black 
wanted to work with you, would you work with them? No, no, no. I, I, I've, it's not exclusive. Um, I would just say that's kind of what my referral network, and, and that was my target from the get-go. So I would say 90, 95% of my clientele are Black women, but okay. it's not exclusive. Mm -hmm. And what about for you, Amina? Um, my target is really generation leaders and wanting very much to help uh, nurture the pipeline, as well as executive leaders uh, stepping into leadership for the first time in particular, but also stepping down and moving into sort of a next chapter, uh, uh, a sort of uh, end, end of career kind of uh, mm -hmm. thinking that goes on. But certainly I have an affinity first and foremost for women of color, for African-American women. That is a, a, a large portion of my practice, but. For example, yesterday I was in a coaching call with a young uh, woman working in philanthropy in London. Uh, you know, I've had people working in health areas in Brazil. I'm coaching a, a brother who's uh, start doing a startup business in uh, uh, Ivory Coast. So they're, they're all different kinds. And I think it's important for me not to fall into habits that I have about how I'm going to coach somebody because of who they are, uh, you know, uh, their demographic, but re really challenge myself to stay alert, to listen deeply, and to ask questions that come out of that person's experience to help them uh, turn the mirror on themselves to understand the challenge that they're facing. And so how long is a, and I put this in quotes, typical coaching engagement? How long will you work with someone and what dictates that working relationship and its and its its length of time uh janine yeah so i would say you know i would say most of my clients fall into a six-month relationship with me or 12 month now having said that there are a lot of custom situations um and i would say i did an analysis probably last year and i realized kind of the medium time pit a period that people stick around and and are engaged with with me as a coach is about seven months so I always say at this point like I you know I really want to build a relationship you know in some ways I become a better coach the, the more I get to know you and you can only do that you can't rush that process you can only do that with time spent so six to twelve months I think as a, a coaching engagement is a good sweet spot for me okay Amina yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I do it in three-month increments, uh, but uh, the normal way that we begin is a six-month engagement. Um, often uh, in corporate settings, they will uh, want you to work with the person uh, for at least six to eight months um, or a year. Um, and I've had clients that have been with me two years, two and a half years. They go away, they get a new appointment, they come back to you. Uh, I think that's what is the joy is that people understand coaching enough to say, oh, I think I'm in a coachable space right now. I need some help with X. And they will come back to you and say, can we, can we do another engagement? Or they change employers and the employer wants you to focus on, wants them to focus on some other developmental opportunity. So what happens when you have been... Um asked to coach someone who does not want to coach, but it's coming from their supervisor or boss that they need to get a coach because this perhaps is maybe one more attempt before this person might be um, transitioned out of the organization. Well, I'd just like to um, underscore something that Janine said earlier. You can't coach someone if there is no relationship. And so you have to 
understand is there enough of a rapport, enough of a trust, enough of a willingness to do the work that's required uh, with a client uh, uh, for it to be successful. And so if someone doesn't want to be coached, you have to ask the question, is it that you don't want to be coached by me because our chemistry is not there? And that's fine. We appreciate that. No one wants to be in a forced relationship. And so it might be helping them to find the coach that's right for them because there are so many different kinds of coaches, so many different styles of coaching that maybe it's just my style is not what you need right now, but you are getting a message from your leadership that you need a coach, that you have to address a, a, a developmental issue, a, a challenge that's there. So let me help you. I can refer you. You can have coaching conversations. Almost any coach that's in the business is going to do at least 30 minutes for free uh, so that you can see if that relationship is there. But if that relationship isn't there, you know, that's like Sisyphus. You keep pushing that ball up the hill and it keeps rolling right on back down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's been your experience, Janine? Have you been in that situation? I have uh, a couple times and it's always challenging. So just like Amina said, I am always like, that's great organizational X that you see the value of coaching and you really want to support this uh, employee. But I always push back and say like, well, let me, let me talk to the employee because I do always think it's the employee, no matter who's paying for it, it is the client's choice about who they mesh with and they should choose, you know, it should be their choice who they want to work with. And I don't want to be assigned to someone. I don't think that's fair to, to me (laughs) or to the potential client. So, and I, and I would say um, in some ways, this is about the transition and the trajectory of the coaching field. I do think Mary, you know, historically it was like, let me give you this coach. You're not performing in the way you should. This is kind of my last ditch effort before we start some other types of procedures. And I'm hoping, you know, in some ways, I don't like to be a part of that, you know, transition. You know, that's a that's a weird dynamic to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some ways it sets up a lot of unfair expectations if done the wrong way. So I want to be coach, uh, you know, I want to be a coach on someone for someone who really um, has a lot of potential, has the support of the organization. Um, really is on a, a trajectory of growth and of self-reflection. I don't want you to feel like I'm coming in um, to be this one point between kind of where you are now and the hammer. Uh, I always think that's a challenge in position. And I, I pretty honestly, I, I typically shy away from those types of engagements because I, I think if you're at the point where you're making that distinction, um, the ball may already be down, down the path. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, what do you think about that? No, I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree uh, that, uh, well, let me say this. I think that the understanding of coaching and what it can do, what it can't do, and how to structure coaching is shifting in both the business community and in the nonprofit community. I've been very gratified to see how nonprofits are now putting into their budgets money that allows individuals that are high potentials or uh, are a newly appointed executive to get that support. They put that as a part of the contract, um, which I I think is great. So they come to it with a different uh, understanding. And when that happens, when someone is sort of being forced into a relationship, I think it is uh, the responsibility of the coach 
to educate the organization about what coaching is and how it works. And if you want success, these are the elements that will help lead to a successful uh, conclusion, a successful outcome that you want for your company, for your organization, and for the client. And so let us ensure that there is the, um, the voice of the person to be coached in this conversation. Um, I, I usually, when I'm going into an organization, I have a conversation with the, uh, with the uh, manager, you know, with whoever is wanting the, the coaching to go on. Uh, I have a meeting with them, I have a meeting with the client, and then I have a meeting with them together so that we can all be clear about how the rules of engagement will go, what the expected outcomes will be, uh, you know, what it is that uh, a leader is looking for, uh, a manager is looking for. And, and I also think it's really, really important for people to understand that they can get out of it. If, you know, if it's not working, no, no harm, no foul. Let, let's uh, let you restart someplace else. Right, right. We, we, as you know, do executive searches, and it is almost without fail that we are putting into any um, offer hire letter that the person has to have an executive coach, um, mm -hmm. particularly when it's a new executive for the first time in this role, and even when it's not. This idea that you get to a certain point and you just don't need any kind of support or the opportunity to have this kind of interaction with someone who's outside of your organization um, I think sometimes is, is not understood that you can use that throughout your career, actually that kind of support, whether or not we get it is a different story, but I don't know how you really could not um, do your, your, you know, working your role in a, in a, in a deeper and a better manner. And so we, we put that sort of without fail in, or we try to, uh, on occasion, we've had uh, a board say, well, we'll be, we'll work on getting them an executive direct, um, an executive coach and say, you know, that's really a decision they have to make. Uh, I understand that the organization is going to be paying for it, but we want to encourage that they have, they are really leading the process around finding an executive, uh, someone to do their executive coaching. Uh, and, and that you can't find a coach for someone else in that manner. You can certainly talk to them, but the idea, generally it's much more directive is how some, you know, a board member is saying it. Like, we'll work on that and we'll find someone. You know, you can go to someone you can make some suggestions, but that really has to be a decision that um, the individual makes. I'm curious to know what you're sort of generally, I'm sure. One other little point that sure. I think is uh, uh, essential to add here, and that is that this is a confidential relationship with right. a client. Right. So okay. that's another important point that um, a, a company or uh, a, a nonprofit organization hiring or paying, supporting for the, the cost of the coach need to understand. I'm not going to come back to report to you what has gone on in these sessions. Right. We can talk about outcomes and how we're tracking against getting to those outcomes. But in terms of that conversation, that is highly confidential. And if the client has any feeling that what they're saying to you might be getting back to their administrators, Trust is gone. The relationship is ended. So I just wanted to get that confidentiality note in there. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really important point, and and we can't say that enough. The conversations with your your executive coach, your your coaching partner, are confidential, and if they're not, that is probably not the relationship for you. Um, I'm curious what you're hearing from women, in particular women of color, that you're coaching. Um, I generally check in 
because I, I think my coaching, as I hear you all talk about it, is somewhere between coaching and mentoring. And so often I am talking to particularly executive directors or CEOs and saying, and so what are you doing about self-care? Um, because whenever I ask that question, most of those people, most of those women start crying because no one's asked them how they're doing and they have no practice in place to take care of themselves. Um, as you know, we're not going to continue to have people come into nonprofit work if we cannot um, make sure that people are taking care of themselves. This idea of coming in and working till you drop, that, that's over with. And particularly younger folks are not going to do that anymore. And I'm so happy that they have said they're not going to do that. Um, but the idea that people think there are just not enough hours in the day and if I just do more, I can do more. No, if you do more, there will be more. And, and how do you... I mean, I don't want, I hate to use the word work-life balance because I think that's not realistic. However, I think it is important that we talk about self-care. And so I'm wondering if that's something that you touch on in any of your sessions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, I think this, this is an issue for younger workers. I think it's absolutely an issue for women leaders uh, and for African-American women leaders uh, in, in particular who are or women of color who are juggling so many different responsibilities and expectations. Um, you know, uh, sometimes we start the session with just taking a meditative moment before we even get into talking about what's going on. Um, uh, certainly there are readings and um, exercises, uh, you know, that, that uh, I share with them. Uh, uh, I encourage meditation and I encourage uh, uh, physical activity. I, I encourage time out and a technology day that, you know, where they just go silent, just don't answer the phone, just don't respond to email. Mm -hmm. uh, and to a certain degree, I think uh, that word self-care is penetrating uh, a lot of different arenas today uh, in the business world, in the nonprofit world. They see the burnout on their staff. Staff is expressing that. If you're doing employee surveys, they talk about that uh, and to a much greater degree. So uh, it's, it's part of the empathy that leadership has to bring into their organizations. And it starts with the board having that empathy for their executive director or for their leadership team to understand they need a timeout, they need to self-care because otherwise we're not getting the best results. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Judy? Totally agree with all of that. And it's interesting in this time of our, us working from home in the time of COVID, I find myself as a coach being so much more intentional about asking that question, Mary, about like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Because, you know, when I actually have two ED clients of mine in my head as I respond to you, they are holding so much. And I bring up, you know, the current context and the time that we're in now because work just seems so fluid right? Like we're all in front of our computers, you know, in, in the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And since I don't have these markers about going somewhere to an office or going to present and then coming home, that it's all blurry. Um, and then dealing with the issues that they're facing with holding space and empathy for their staff. So, you know, I usually start there. I usually end there. It's funny. I was talking to an ED last week and I was like, let's really talk about your time off and like, what's your vacation plan for the summer? And I want you tomorrow to email me and to let me know when you're taking off. And she was like, Janine, I'm taking off June, you know, 30th. And I was like, great. Okay. 
you know, like I want to be part of my role as coach's accountability partner. And as Amina said, like my job is to hold the space for you and to be like, you are important too. You are holding a lot, but you are important too. And if you don't take care of yourself, all of these other things are going to fall apart. And I know you feel like you have more to do, right? There's more on your shoulders, but in that instance, you actually have to be much more intentional about taking those breaks, physical breaks, social media, email breaks, et cetera. So, and I think as black women and as people of color, we hold so much responsibility. That's our role. That's what we've done historically. And so sometimes it's like, is that really yours to do? Like, can't somebody else do that? And sometimes it's like, sit down and take a break. Mm -hmm. I think we have to help people not feel a responsibility to live into the myth of the superwoman. Okay. You know, uh, many of us grew up with a, you can do it all. Well, you can do it all, but you just can't do it all, all the time. All right. So, yep. so all at once, <laughs> all at once. Exactly. So really helping people feel okay about saying no. You know, we, we do a lot of sessions where we talk about how do we practice using your no. And uh, if you say no to that, what else is possible? And if you say yes to that, that thing, what is going to happen? All right, so you see where that's going? How is that going to make you feel? And what's the repercussions of that? So what's the answer uh, that you're going to, uh, you know, what, what, what action do you want to take now that you've recognized that that's going to put you over the top? Uh, and I love what Janine said about being the accountability partner, because that is part of our role. We are the enforcers by uh, consent. But if you say to me that you really need to take that time off, then I'm going to ask you, like, so when is that going to happen? And what are you going to do? And are you going to take your phone and computer with you? Uh, uh, you know, are you leaving that home? Uh, and what can you do in that three hours? Help them imagine what else is possible so that there's the desire to take that time to renew themselves. I think sometimes self-care sort of sounds like, oh, bubble bath. And, you know, and, and it may be that, but helping people imagine what, what is my definition of self-care for me so that they can really then act on that vision. I love that. And it's going to be different, right? It's going to look very different. I, I have uh, on my own team because I'm, I got into the Fitbit craze and I, and I got several people Fitbits and we were doing, yeah, we were doing this whole thing. Right. And I was like, I'm a little competitive. I know that's surprising. And uh, so I'm like, let's, let's have a contest every week. Who can get up to 10,000 miles each day? And I was the one that kept winning. <laughs> so some points of what's it, you probably won the money that you used to buy us those Fitbits. I said, that's true. <laughs> so we had to stop that. But I am constantly trying to insert that into, you know, beyond just my coaching clients, just every day, my team members, so that they will take a break. Because to your point now, and I already have an issue with working too much, and now it just rolls from one end to the other, to your point. When I leave my office, Janine, I just take my laptop downstairs with me, <laughs> you know, so that I can still do a few things and, and really coming to terms with the fact that rest is doing something. Resting is in fact doing something and it's okay. It's okay to sit quietly and contemplate your navel if that's what you need to do. That's okay. But that is a message that I think we have to hear over and over and over again. And 
when I'm saying it to someone else, I'm saying it to myself as well, because I have to hear that message as well. Um, and in particular with this stay at home and restricted access, and it has been as though the days have just gone on and there's not a clear, a clear break. Um, because to your point, we're not rushing out somewhere. Nope. You know, uh, one day this week, I'll just tell you, I just sort of completely spontaneously, we went to someone's house for dinner. It, we, we hadn't planned that. And someone had just said to, well, oh, why don't you all come over for dinner? We're like, well, you know, I thought I had a meeting at six, but it was canceled. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and so we just went to someone's home, socially distanced, and had dinner. And it was completely unplanned. And it was it was so lovely and unexpected. And so how do we bring some of that back while we are still in this space and while we still have many, many things to do? When I asked someone about self-care, I was talking to a VP of a large women's organization. And I said, have you checked in with any of your, your leaders about how they're taking care of themselves? She said, they're gonna look at me and start laughing. I said, oh, we have to still have the conversation. We can't just stop having that conversation, right? We have right. to continue to push that forward it can't just go in the background because there's always going to be something to do. There's always going to be um, something that we have to figure out. And so I'm curious if you've noticed, um, and maybe this has broken down along age lines, or what have you noticed with regard to how people are coming to you and the, the state of their world, if you will? And have you seen that change um, over the last several months or in, even in the last several years in terms of how people are approaching you as the coach, the kinds of things they are trying to resolve and work on? Yeah, what, what kinds of things are you saying? I think that uh, especially for my clients, um, uh, my uh, African-American clients, my women of color clients, uh, there is a lot of anguish about um, the racial dynamics in the places where they are working and the ability to voice that and the expectation uh, that they will be uh, leaders in carrying that conversation forward and not uh, and, and you know, and so everything is tied up in that. There's resentment. There's a sense of responsibility. There is a sense of isolation um, and um, uh, a real, uh, you know, sort of anger about still having to deal with this. And I thought it would be different. So that that's one of the things that I hear. And there's all kinds of stuff going on around the power plays that are happening. How they can say something as a woman, as a black woman, as a Latinx woman, and it's not heard, and somebody else will say the very same thing, and all of a sudden it's, you know. So a lot of frustration about how they're seen in the organization, the sense of uh, being without the same uh, elements or um, uh, level of power to really shift the dynamics in the office in a way that is more respectful uh, and uh, certainly. Uh, more uh, acknowledges to a greater degree the presence uh, and the power and the contributions that these people are making in their workplaces. Mm -hmm. Fully agree with that. You know, I would also say, you know, I think the anger piece is so important here. It's such a, and it's almost like black people never get to be angry, particularly black professional people. Like we're the ones that made it. And so there's this real dynamic about like, I'm angry, but I shouldn't be. I should be thankful, right? I made it. Um, 
And so I think my role as a coach is to let people be like, no, this sucks. And you have every right to be angry and you get to be angry in this brave space with me. And I find myself, probably because uh, I did this personally, I find myself in some ways pushing about like, when is enough enough, right? And when, given this frustration, given this anger, given all the things that Amina so eloquently said, and, and I feel every day for my clients, when do you get to make other choices about your future? So people come to me usually because they're like, I did everything right, I got to X. You know, I did it in a, maybe, you know, in a career passive way. Like I just kept going up this ladder. I did the next, next logical step and I'm here and I'm not happy here. And how am I more strategic? How do I redefine what my values are? How do I redefine what success is? I, I'm, I bought into the success that white supremacy culture told me, right? And I got here, I made it and I'm still not happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that so people tough. focus on what does that look like? What are the values? How do you, uh, you know, that it's okay to go and that you should feel confident in your own capacity to design the future that you want to have and that that is okay and that is your obligation to yourself, quite honestly. I don't care what others might think. You should not care what others might think. There's the advice piece, so I have to frame it a little differently. But, but really sort of saying, why is that important? Why is that important to have validation from these other sources? What are other places where that validation comes? Is it in the church? Is it in community? Is it with your girlfriends? Is it in your household? And then how do you tap into the power of that and use that to propel you to the new, new possibilities of what you can create in your life? You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm very struck by um, the clarity that younger people have about when it's not working and it's time to go. I think it is older people who hold on much longer to uh, trying to make something work that's not working. And um, for those younger people, it's also understanding how what resilience looks like and what um, pushing through can yield if that is viable, you know, not just quit and go and start again. And, you know, we have a year cycle here and a year cycle there. Um, that's okay if that's what you want, but let's be clear about what you want. And so sometimes it's having the difficult conversation and helping them script um, and, uh, uh, really implement a difficult conversation that at the very least they have spoken what's on their heart in a way that is uh, an engaged and direct and meaningful conversation. You know, you're not screaming and yelling, you're not losing it, but uh, the difficult conversation really is the indicator of go or stay for them and, uh, and just helping them to shape that. And I, I often will talk about the importance of making a plan, right, to this point of just not bolting out the door. You know, let's just take a moment because having a plan really gives you this time oh. to think and, and to have the goal. Like, you know, you're not going to be here forever. And so let's make the plan. Let's make it, you know, a plan that you can put into action because just leaving um, is not going to be good for you. It, it will have some impact on the organization, but it's really not going to be good for you either. And this idea of not really leaving relationships in the wake that you can't 
in any way leverage down the road, and, and, you know, as you look for your next opportunities. And so I often talk about what is the plan and hold on to the plan, right? Make a plan, but this idea of I'm just going to leave and I'm, I'm going to leave without any notice, uh, that doesn't serve, that does, that's not going to serve you well, uh, for sure. Um, the other thing that I just want to comment on is this idea about, that you talked about safe space versus brave space, or you talked about brave space. And when we do our work on racial equity, and I'm, I'm sure it's similar for you, people often, you know, when we're talking to a prospective client, they're saying, well, we'd like to make sure that there's safe space for everyone. And we said, well, there's, there's, um, there's a difference between safe space and brave space. And what we're going to be working toward is brave space. Because safe space means I can sit here with my arms folded and not do anything. And there's, you know, if I have any discomfort, I'll push that back and I'll just sit where I am, as opposed to moving out of that comfort level, moving out of whatever box you may be in, and and maybe saying something that's not, you know, going to be received well, but taking that risk in this moment. And so we often have to talk about those differences between safe and brave, because, you know, we just use this idea of we just want to be safe, we want to be safe, and that's not going to change anything, right? That's not going to change anything at all. Hard as it is to believe, we have come to the listener questions. Yes. Already, already. <laughs> and we're going to be right back in just a moment with your questions for Amina and Janine. You're listening to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Gathering Ground. If you have any questions you'd like to ask me or our guest, please send it to Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. Again, send your questions and comments, your feedback to Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you'll be notified whenever there's a new episode. Just go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and sign up for Gathering Ground. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, and today we are so excited to have Amina Dickerson and Janine Hill with us. We're talking about coaching and mentoring. It's been a fascinating conversation, and we're now going to move to one of our favorite parts of the podcast, questions from you, our listeners. So, Janine and Amina, this first question is from Billy, who's in Chicago. And Billy says, I'm a Black master's graduate of a large, prestigious institution just outside of Chicago, and was recently approached by the Alumni Association about sitting on a committee about what the university can do to protect and care for Black students on campus. I had a very negative experience as a Black student, but I wanted to give the school the benefit of the doubt. I went to the first meeting and the committee, of the committee, I should say, and she was led to believe, uh, Billy, that this was going to discuss issues facing Black students. But the room was actually filled with many people of color, and she was the only person that she could see that was Black. Part of me wants to leave the committee, but part of me doesn't want to leave this group to its own devices. How much of my energy should I give to this? So what do you think? So the meeting didn't turn out as she expected. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things we know, certainly if we didn't understand before, is that when we say Black people, we need to say Black people. And when we're talking about people of color, we need to say people of color people. They are not interchangeable. Okay. Um, and so what do you think Billy should think about? What are some of the questions she should ask herself? Or maybe this is more of a mentoring response. <laughs> what mm. should she do? 
Well, I think, I think, Mary, this is a great example of making the distinction we've been talking about, about coaching and mentoring. So it feels like you're right. Billy is asking for an answer to her question about how much energy. Um, I actually would pull back from this whole story. So part of our role as coaches is to not get wrapped into the details of the story. So I heard you. And in some ways, I'm going to ignore all of that. What I'm interested in, like the undercurrent, so part of my role as a coach is to hear what's said and what's not said and not get distracted by the fluff of this particular circumstance. And there's a lot of fluff here. What I hear is the shoulds. And what's this should? Like, I should do this, this alumni committee, I'm the black person, they asked me to do it, I should be, you know, the, the standard bearer for the black people at this university, even though my experience wasn't great. That, to me, is all fluff. I want to understand the shoulds. And like, I can't answer this question for you, right? This is me playing my coaching role. I don't get to answer the question for you about how much energy. What I am very interested and curious about is where's the should? Like I'm hearing this whole undercurrent of shoulds. And this is in some ways what we do. We've talked about this. Black people get wrapped into the responsibility, particularly when we're serving in these roles, right? We want to be, we want to make it better for the crew behind us. But I want to talk about these shoulds and like, Billy, do you really want to be doing this in the first place? What of your values is this highlighting or infringing upon? You know, where are you in this? How do you want to show up here? Is this where you need to be spending your time? And if you choose not to do it, that's okay. That doesn't mean you're not fulfilling your responsibility as a, as a Black woman. And I, so I really want to get at this should thing. And I think we as coaches, our job is to like be like, what's that should about? And what do you really feel, not what you think you should be doing? Okay. I mean, anything to add to that? I, I, I think uh, that Janine has said it so well. Uh, the only, I, I might ask uh, a lot of whys. Why is this important to you? Why are you concerned about the composition in the room if you're carrying your message? Uh, what is it, you know, I, I would just do a lot of inquiry with this individual to help them get clear about the, what is going on for them personally, what's going on with the school, and what, if any, role um, she could play in that. Okay. And, and, and to affirm that you, you know, like, what is the contract here for you? Uh, are you being paid to do this? Is, is this on your own time? Uh, you know, those kinds of things as well. So but isn't a perfect play. example of how often we take on situations and that idea, I love the pulling out of the should. I should do this or I should go or, or when we think that we're irreplaceable. Well, if I don't do it, then no one's going to do it. Well, then maybe it doesn't get done. <laughs> how about that? It's just not going to get done, right? We, we have to let some things fall, but we have, we have to give ourselves permission to do that. And that's... The, the um, world around us does not support that at all. And so we have to, we have to lead that. So here's, here's our last question. This is from Roslyn, who's in Louisville. I work at a nonprofit in Louisville, and lately um, a lot of the work we've been doing has been around directly supporting protesters fighting in support of Black lives. I'm a white Latina, and on phone calls with my mother, I've heard her say some subversively messed up uh, things uh, through the guise of being worried about me. Uh, that's in quotes. Um, and worried about me that I'm protecting all those, in quotes, angry looters and protesters. I've had many conversations about my work, but something isn't getting through. And this, again, is asking for advice. 
Any advice? <laughs> Amina? Um, well, uh, uh, starting with the caveat that that's not the coach's role to give it advice. That's right. um, I, I guess I would ask what is the relation that, you know, underneath there's a lot that's going on, but what is it that she hopes for from her mother in terms of a response to this work? And if it creates that kind of reaction, I'm curious why you would continue to share what's going on if there's not um, a conducive environment for that to be heard. Sort of like that's a Sisyphus moment, right? You keep pushing that ball up the hill and her mother's racism tends to have it roll back down. And that's not trying to be judgmental here, but it's just, if she's, what's the capacity for change? I guess I would ask as well. Janine, anything to, to add? Yeah, um, you know, it's reminding me of a technique sometimes that I use with my clients as a coach. And the technique is, you know, when you feel people really getting stuck and bogged down into a situation and this is the way it is, sometimes I'll tell, I'll ask them to tell me a story. I think some of the ways we learn from ourselves and other people's is to understand, and I'm doing that for a couple reasons. I want you to really hear yourself talk about this. And I'm also saying, tell me a story. I'm not telling you, asking you to tell me how it is. I'm asking you to tell me a story and I'm using that language intentionally because I want you to know this is a story you tell yourself and you can tell another story, right? So in some ways I'm like, what's the story here about the relationship with your mom and what's your best case scenario here? And, you know, I'm quick to say like, yeah, this is a, a complicated dynamic, but like I'm coaching you. I'm not coaching mama. You are my client, not her. So I can't, I, I can't address what's going on with her. I can't address, you know, we can talk about what, what feelings that brings up with you and how you maybe want to set boundaries about that. And then, I, I mean, you're right. I don't want to give advice, but, but if I were going to give advice on this situation, I'd be like, what are you sharing about your work, right? Like you're not going to change her attitude, but part of the way when we talk about implicit bias, just like we learn things, we can unlearn them. And how do we unlearn them, right? We learn by seeing counter messages. So are there things that Rosalind can do to just tell stories, not to be like, mom, that was just really racist, but tell stories about your work and the people that you're interacting with and what you're seeing happen. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm being, you know, idealistic, but I think, you know, maybe you can tell her different stories so that she can hear counter messages and doesn't hear the angry looters and protesters message. And maybe that's your role. Well, um, I appreciate those questions from our listeners, and I appreciate your answers. And as we have already said, there's never enough time. So we're going to look toward uh, maybe part two of career coaching and mentoring. So many things to, to think about, and, and maybe we'll invite a couple of other folks to join us who, who are thinking about coaching and, and get their answers and get their questions live. Um, but this has been lovely. Thank you so much uh, for taking this time to speak uh, with me. Um, it just goes without saying that the work you're doing is life-saving and I know I appreciate it and I appreciate it for all the, the people you're working with. Um, we need more people like you doing this work. Um, and we also just want to remind our listeners um, that if you're interested in connecting with Amina Dickerson or Janine Hill, that information will be on our website. 
um, mortongroup.com, but also at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. We'll have all of their contact information. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work. Um, I'm Mary Morton. You've been listening to Gathering Ground. And today we've been speaking with Amina Dickerson and Janine Hill on coaching and mentoring. Until next time. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.